Christians uh, who gathered and um, each attendee at this conference was given a balloon before entering the main session. Now the theme of this conference was joy. The theme of this conference was joy and when the session began, the presider instructed each person to release their balloon into the air anytime they experienced joy during worship. Whether it was during the singing, whether it was during the preaching, or any part of the service, just if you experience the joy of the Lord, just let that balloon fly into the room. At the end of their time, over a third of the people still had their balloon. It's like under their seat or they're holding on to it, whatever it might be. So either that session was pretty weak or, uh, or we really do, as Reformed Christians, deserve to be called the frozen chosen. Or um, it's just a lame idea, lame idea. I, don't, don't worry. We will not, I promise, we will not be handing out balloons next Sunday to test your joy uh, before worship and... I imagine if we did, y'all would just be funny and release them at the end and say, I'm glad that's over and finally over. Um, today, as we continue in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to be learning about the fruit of joy. Now, for some of you, this topic uh, seems like the least important of all of the fruits. I mean, last week we covered love, and of course that's really important. The ninth fruit is self-control. We're like, oh, I need more self-control. I really need to be here for that sermon. But joy, joy seems childish. It seems overly emotional, even unnecessary. We don't need joy. We need truth. We don't need joy. We need passion and conviction. But did you know that in the New Testament, there are more occurrences for the word of joy than for the word of grace. In the New Testament, there are more occurrence of words describing joy than there are for grace. In fact, it's 326 to 153 by one theologian's research. Brothers and sisters, by that volume alone, this tells us that as much as we commend grace to one another, as much as we centralize the theme, the topic of grace in the Christian life, we ought to be commending the joy of God to one another as well. Perhaps we think so little of joy, not because it's unimportant, but because we are under-informed. In too many of our lives, biblical joy has been misunderstood and therefore misplaced. The goal of today's sermon is to recover a biblical vision of joy and to experience it as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to turn to two passages. Uh, we're going to read our Galatians 5 uh, passage each week. Hopefully it will become a nice memory verse for you. And then we'll be turning over to Psalm chapter 4. Uh, if you're only going to turn to one, then uh, go to Psalm chapter 4. But if you want to flip to both and, and do that real quick, uh, we will read that together. So we'll begin with Galatians chapter 5. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. The word of the Lord. We're going to look at three things in our passage today, in our message today. First, the nature of joy, what it is, how can we understand it? Second, the thieves of joy, what things in our lives try to rob us and suffocate our joy in the Lord. And finally, how can we fight for joy? How do we fight for joy? In Psalm chapter 4, the author is King David. The author is King David, um, and he's crying out to God in distress. Psalm chapter 4 is considered a prayer for help. Most commentators believe that actually David's not yet a king. He penned it while he was being pursued and persecuted by King Saul. So he was serving Saul as his king. And then when Saul got angry and jealous towards his servant David, he persecuted him. He threatened him. He wanted to kill him. Another option for the dating of this psalm is that David wrote it when he was expelled from his throne and humiliated by his son Absalom. Either way, we see that David is in distress. He's crying out to God for help as his honor has been turned to shame. Lies are being told about him all throughout the kingdom and many have turned against him. I mean, imagine being David, the hero of an entire kingdom, the slayer of Goliath, only later to have your own king turn against you and turn his kingdom against you as well. Despite this, David knows that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, that his God hears his prayers. Verse 4 shows David's resolve in the midst of his trouble. He writes, be angry and do not sin. That's such a helpful, such a helpful indicator for us. In the midst of trials, in the midst of troubles, right? We don't have to say, oh, joy, joy tells me just put on a smile and act like it's no big deal. No, we can be angry and yet we are called not to sin. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. David is telling himself, he's telling us, that no matter the circumstances, we are called as people of God to live rightly, okay? to live righteously before our God. Now that seems really familiar, very expected, especially if you've uh, spent time around the church. Yeah, oh, of course, you know, obey God, trust in him. Right? Live rightly, offer sacrifices. That sounds very simple, easier said than done, Michael. But then in verses 6 and 7, we have a very interesting, even profound observation from David. Let me read it again. 
There are many who say, who will show us some good? In the midst of trials, in the midst of trouble and distress, who will show us some good? Who will offer help and relief? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now when we read these two verses, it seems like they're connected as one continuous idea of God showing his people good and then putting joy in their hearts. It seems that way, right? God's going to show good as they cry out to him, and then he's going to pour joy into their hearts. But these verses are actually not in continuation of the same idea. Verse 6 and verse 7 are in contrast with one another, okay? Contrast with each other. In this psalm, The many, when David's referring to the men in verse 2, when he's referring to the many, they are the wicked ones. But the few, even the singular one, they are the righteous. John Calvin, the great reformer, he says this on this passage. The many grasp at various objects, some at one thing and some at another, thinking to find in them supreme happiness. David, with very good reason, separates himself from them and proposes to himself an end of an entirely opposite description. You see, what do most people do when we are in distress? We cry out to God. We cry out to God asking for good, asking for his blessing, even asking for his presence. But what do we really mean? What do you really mean when you say those things? What are you really looking for? And if we're honest with ourselves, we're looking for God's gifts, not God himself. We're looking for gifts, not the giver. We say we're seeking God's face, but in reality, we're seeking grain and wine. Our versions may be different. We're not probably looking for rice and you know, grape juice. We're looking for money. And success, we're saying, God, the bank account is depleted. Rent is due. Payments are up. God, help. Show me some good. Show me the money. Perhaps you're looking for health and security for yourself, for your loved ones. Maybe you're looking for beauty and self-esteem. You don't like who the person you're looking at in the mirror is. My God, change me. Change my life. Help me to to feel better about who I am and how I'm living. God, show me some good. Would you show up in my life? Take a moment and be honest with yourself. What do you want from God? What do you really want from God? What could he possibly give you? What could he possibly offer you that would assure you to prove to you That he cares for you, that he loves you, that he's with you. Take a moment, just be honest. What would that be? What would that one request, what would that one ask be? You see, if we're honest, we are like the many. We are like the many that David is referring to. We use the right words, but we want the wrong things. Right? We use the right words, we bring our best Christianese. Oh, Lord, your presence. Oh, Lord, your face. Oh, Lord, your blessing. We use the right words, but we want the wrong things. But David goes in the opposite direction. 
For David, it's the joy of the Lord that comforts him. It's the joy of the Lord that sustains him. It's not defeating his foes and his enemies. It's not about obtaining the glory that he deserves as the savior of Israel. It's not about those things. It's not about his safety and his security in this world. It's the joy of the Lord that is his strength. And he says, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and with their wine. You offer me something greater, something more beautiful, something more sustaining and transformative than anyone or anything in this world could possibly offer me. Charles Spurgeon describes David's joy so well. He writes this, Christ in the heart is better than the corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Corn and wine are but fruits of the world. But the light of God's countenance, the light of God's face, is the ripe fruit of heaven. Let my granary be empty. I am yet full of blessings if Jesus Christ shines upon me. Can you say those words? Let my granary be empty. And I am full of joy. I am complete. I am, I am flourishing and blessed. If Jesus Christ is shining upon me. Friends, have you experienced this kind of joy? Have you experienced this kind of goodness? A joy so great it surpasses the feeling of anything that this world has to offer. And have you experienced a joy so good that endures, that it endures through the loss that anything in this world could take away. You see, that is the nature of Christian joy. It's not fragile. It's strong. It can't be destroyed or secured by a turn of events. It's so different from our emotions, isn't it? It's so different from what we understand as, as happiness, and bliss, those things are quickly defined by a turn of events. And yet Christian joy is solid. Christian joy is lasting and unchanging. It endures. It endures. Why? How? Because it's rooted in the pleasure of knowing God. It's rooted in being filled by the Holy Spirit. It's rooted in the fact that we, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, are assured a place in God's family. And we have a future in God's kingdom. Joy comes from God. And it's experienced as we delight in God for who he is. You see, we all know. We all know what it's like to love someone for who they are. Versus, right, what they can give you, okay? Have you, do you have any relationships like that, okay? Certain relationships, you're like, I just love you for who you are no matter what. And then there's other people that, like, I have a relationship with you and it is purely utilitarian. It is an exchange of goods and services. We all have utilitarian relationships, I do. Um, before I had my son, Seth, uh, every Monday was golf day for me. Every Monday was golf day for me. And so I would meet with pastors. We call ourselves, I've told this illustration, the PGA, Pastors Golf Association. We're so cheesy, right? I would meet, so we would have pastors driving from like Santa Clarita, I'm Pasadena, Glendale, Irvine, Fullerton, Chino Hills. We would all gather together, 
all to play golf. The only reason I would text these guys, half of them, I don't even like them, right? Honestly. Like, I'd be like, man, do we want to hang out? I was like, we want to grab dinner? No, right? Golf is done, right? I don't even like these guys, right? I would, half of, most of them, I wouldn't even invite to come and guest speak at our, at our church, right? And these are pastors. They're supposed to be brothers in the Lord. This is being recorded. Man, I hope they never listen, right? <laughs> half of them, some of them, I'm re- I really love them as brothers, right? But, but, but I, I, some of them, I haven't seen them in eight months because my son is eight months old. And I'm like, oh, right? It's just like that. Purely utilitarian. We show up on Monday. We're like, golf buddy, golf brother, right? And then when we're done, five hours later, peace, right? I don't think about them. I don't text them unless we're talking about next week's tea time. But Alice, it's not uti- it better not be utilitarian, <laughs> right? When I proposed to her, right, I said these lines, right? Uh, single men, you can use this one. You know, and, and I was a young pastor, Right, future. I didn't know I was going to end up at such an awesome church here at All Nations, and and um, I was making so little money. I had to DJ on the side, right? So I was a DJ on Saturdays and then a pastor on Sundays. Um, and I told her, I was like, Alice, I don't know where we're going to go, but I know I want to go with you, right? Ooh, right. <laughs> I don't know where God's going to lead us, but no matter what, I know I want to go with you. It's about you. And, and the life I want to live with you. It's about who you are. It's not about what you can do for me. It's not about like, I, I wasn't like, as long as you graduate and get a great job. As long as you pay off all of your debts and then yada, yada, yada. None of, none of that. There were no strings attached. It was just, I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know where God's going to lead. But I know I want to go with you. There's a difference. You see, if your relationship to God is purely utilitarian, you will never experience the joy of the Lord. You will never experience the joy of God because the joy of God is rooted not in what he can do for you in this life, in this world, with goods and services, grain and wine. The joy of the Lord is rooted in who he is. If you have a utilitarian relationship with God, at best, you can be happy with him. You will not have his joy. You will be happy with him because he's servicing your need. You're like, oh, man, dude, I got that job. I got that house. I got that dog, right? Whatever it might be. Oh, blessed. Thank you, God. And you will be happy with God. But as soon as he fails to meet your need, you'll hate him. As soon as he fails to meet your need, your desires, your desperations. You'll despise him. You'll blame him. You'll say, God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to my child? How could you let this happen to our future? You will blame God for failing to service you in the way that you want and desire from him. But if you love him for who he is, if you delight in him, Because he's beautiful, not serviceable. If you worship him, because you realize that he, as our Lord Jesus Christ, has given up all of himself for you on the cross. If that's the reason for worship, if that's the reason why you are a Christian, then your joy is unshakable. Nothing can take that away. Your joy will be rooted in our everlasting, 
unchanging, eternal God. C.S. Lewis, he calls joy the serious business of heaven. Man, he's such a good wordsmith, isn't he? Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is not dainty. It's not childish. It's not just emotive stuff. Joy is an anchor that steadies us in the midst of storms. The joy of the Lord strengthened David as he was running for his life. The joy of the Lord sustained the Apostle Paul as he was being persecuted by the Jews, as he was thrown into a Roman prison. The joy of the Lord sustained Paul. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame all for the joy that was set before him. Joy helped endure our Lord, uh, helped our Lord endure the cross. Let's move to our second point now, the thieves of joy. Let's consider the opposites of joy and the counterfeits of joy. We've heard that phrase, comparison is the thief of joy, haven't we? Comparison is the thief of joy, and I think there's a lot of good truth to that. I almost selected our primary thief to joy is envy. That would have been a good one, right? We have so much envy in our lives in so many subtle or overt ways. It's definitely something we should consider, especially in our culture and social media. But I want to pose something even deeper than envy as the opposite of joy. It's sorrow. It's, oh, sorry, sorry, not sorrow. (laughs) Not sorrow, not sadness, right? Not sorrow, not sadness. Because joy goes through. It sustains us through those things. They're not opposites. It's actually hopelessness and despair. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. Why? It's a scary thing for a Christian to lose hope. Okay. Our hope in God, our hope in the gospel, our hope in God's sovereignty and his providence, those things are anchored. Right? They're anchored to our Christian joy and our experience of joy. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This is a well-known passage from Paul. And he makes this important connection between joy, suffering, and hope. It's this, it's this kind of chain for the Christian life as we experience the gospel. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now here's the connection I want to make in this passage. Christian joy, it's found in two things. First, faith in the promise that God loves us, that God has made peace with us while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, through the bloodshed work of his son, Jesus Christ. That is justification, right? By grace through faith. The second source of joy, of Christian joy, right, 
we see that we rejoice because we have hope. We have hope in the promise that God is sovereign, that God works out all things for his glory and our good, that God offers his people his good promises, and he is worthy of our trust. This includes our suffering. This includes our pain. That's why suffering is not the opposite of joy. Sorrow is not the opposite of joy. Even in our sorrows, God is working. God is leading to produce endurance, character, and hope. That is what God is doing in our life. We believe in the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. We believe in eternal life after death. We believe that God will vindicate his saints. We believe that God will wipe every tear from our eye. We believe not only that we are saved by grace through faith, we believe that he will return and he will right all of the wrongs. We believe in the new heavens and the new earth, that life is going to be filled with abundant joy and goodness. I want to say this as warmly and as compassionately as I can. There are some of you here today who've lost your joy in God, not because you doubt the gospel, not because you reject Jesus and the cross, but you've lost your joy in God because you've lost your hope in his plan. You've lost your hope in his promises. You've lost your hope that he's actually with you in life and and working out all things. You've lost hope. You've experienced a lot of suffering. You've experienced deep pain. And rather than following this kind of chain that Paul describes, where your suffering produces endurance and then character and hope, your suffering has led you to disappointment. It's led you to to doubt and despair. It's made you question these two pillars of joy. Does God really love you? And is God really leading you? Is he really in control? Is he really worthy of your trust in your daily life? I don't want to treat this as binary. It's not an either-or thing. It's, it's not an either-or thing. I, I just want to be honest. Okay? Just like David writes, in our anger, do not sin. When I hear of your suffering, church, I want you to know that's one of my first prayers for you. When I hear of your loss, when I hear of difficult circumstances in your life, I pray that in your anger, in your despair, in your heartache and pain, that you will not sin. But these things are not binary. So don't think that, oh my gosh, all of my sorrow, all of my feelings of pain and suffering, they have to be absolutely extinguished for me to have joy in God. No, no, no. They, they, they can exist simultaneously in our lives. Talk to anyone who's gone through grief. Talk to anyone who's gone through heartache and loss. Okay? The scars are still there. They will always be there. The question is this, which one is winning? Which one is dominating in your life? Is it hopelessness because of pain? Or is it hope because you believe that our God is a God who works out all things for the good of his people, according to his plan for those who love him? You believe in that more 
then you believe that God's not with you anymore. That God can't help you. That God's turned away from you. They're not binary. They can coexist in your life. But one has to win. One has to dominate. One has to guide and lead you. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. And the counterfeit of joy is elation or happiness based on circumstances or gifts. Okay. Uh, I've kind of mentioned and hinted at it, right, that there's an earthly happiness, a superficial elation that's a counterfeit to Christian joy. Pastor Paul, our college pastor, he shared a great story with me that I was like, man, I'm just going to have to share this with the church. And so there it goes. I just want to share it with you guys. But he shared this with his college group at, at a retreat last year. In 2011, there was a NASCAR driver named Trevor Bain. And at the age of 20, Trevor Bain, in his second NASCAR race ever, he won the Daytona 500. The Daytona 500. If you don't know what that is, because you're like, Californians, we're not into NASCAR. And Pastor Mike, you're just a hick from the South. Um, It's pretty much the biggest NASCAR race you could win. After the victory, he tweeted, God is good, and all the glory goes to him. It sounds like Tebow, right? And, and just, you know, typical Christian responses to winning the Super Bowl or winning the Heisman Trophy or winning the Daytona 500. It's like, God is good. All the glory goes to him. Shortly after, right, there was a hater on Twitter. And he responded to Trevor Bain and he said, of course you can give thanks to God. You just won the Daytona 500. It's easy to give thanks to God when you are on top of the world, Right? And we see that, we, we think that with each other, right? Someone's like standing on the, on the base of the Eiffel Tower with their loved one, and they're like, hashtag blessed. It's like, easy, right? They're at the base of Yosemite picture, and they're like, oh, yeah, hashtag blessed. Like, that is easy. Shortly after Trevor Bain, he began to feel physically weak and ill, so ill that he was hospitalized. No one could figure out what was wrong with him. They had to run multiple tests day after day. Eventually, they diagnosed it as Lyme disease. And it ends up being that Lyme disease wasn't even what he had. He has MS. He has MS, uh, multiple sclerosis. And as a result of this disease, he was unable to race for a long period of time. Trevor Bain, he's just so young and... um, such a rookie, he didn't have tenure in NASCAR, and so he even lost sponsorships. And he was unable to race at times. Throughout everything, he never lost his faith in God. So while he was in the hospital, he dug up that old tweet, and he found that comment, and he replied to that person saying, just want to let you know, I've been sick, and I've been unable to race for a long time, but I still Give all glory and praise to God. Friends, happiness. Happiness can come when we win the Daytona 500. Right? Joy is still praising him from your hospital bed. Joy is not knowing if you'll ever be able to race again, if you'll ever be able to do the things that you love again, and yet still praising God for who he is. Praising God because he is worthy. So friends, how do we fight for joy? 
How do we fight for joy in our lives? And I want to close with one final passage from the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Jesus has sent out his disciples. He sends out 72 of them on this kind of short-term mission trip. Short-term mission trip, and they return, and they were filled with joy, literally filled with joy, and they were telling Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It was amazing. We were excommunicating demons. We were healing people. What an awesome trip. We were filled with joy. Jesus responds to his disciples, and he says this, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in your abilities. Don't rejoice in your possessions. Don't rejoice in your accomplishments. Don't be, and on the flip side, don't be discouraged for the lack of any of those things. Jesus is telling his disciples, it's not even about rejoicing in the things that you are willing to or you can accomplish for my name. I mean, think about that. Christian, I know there's a lot of things you want to do for the kingdom. Christian, I know there's a lot of things you have done and are doing for my name's sake. It's not even about rejoicing in those things. Rather, it's about rejoicing in what Jesus has accomplished for you. That's Christian joy, not about your accomplishments for Jesus, but about being rooted and joyful in his accomplishments for you. It is because of his life, death, and resurrection that your name can be written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, there isn't a single person in this room, there isn't a single person on this earth that can do so much to merit that privilege to receive that gift. There's no amount of money you can earn, no amount of good you can do in this world to secure the promise that your name is written in heaven in God's everlasting book of life. Only Jesus is able to secure that for you. So brothers and sisters, how do we fight for joy? First way we do so is by rejoicing in the gospel of God's grace. You rejoice in Jesus Christ and what he alone is able to do by securing your life everlasting in God's family, in God's home, in heaven. Fight for joy by remembering the promise of heaven. That's the second thing. So first, remember the gospel and the work of Jesus. Second, remember what God has in store for you. Remember what God has promised you. And, 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 and if you're anything like me, you never think about heaven. Unless you're about to fail an exam and you're like, heaven, come. Right? Unless something bad's about to happen and you're like, I have jury duty. Maranatha, Lord, right? That's the only time we think about heaven. We rarely think about heaven. But Jesus is telling us, you want to fight for joy? You want to be reminded and filled with joy, fill your heart, fill your mind with the promise of heaven. Right now, I'm taking a class on Christian counseling right, uh, with pastors David and Paul. And we're taking a lecture on the dynamics of change. How do we change? How do we become more like Jesus Christ? And David Powelson, who recently went to the Lord, he reminded us in the first lecture, 
that as we begin to think about the dynamics of change, we must consider our ultimate destination. If you want to change your life, if you want to change how you are feeling, how you are thinking, what you are doing, you need to to think directionally. Where are you going to go? Where do you ultimately want to end up? And he says, we must consider the destination of heaven if we want to begin to embark on Christian change. These are some beautiful reminders he gave as he described heaven. Would you hear them? Would you imagine with me? Would you hear with me these promises? In heaven, you will be alive, you will be strong and healthy forever. I know right now there might be diseases, ailments that so plague you and burden you. In heaven, you will be strong, healthy, and alive forever. In heaven, you will be liberated from all your fears. Just imagine that. Living each day without any fear, without any anxiety, without any worry of being haunted by your failures, haunted by your insecurities, worrying what other people think about you, worrying whether you're going to make enough money this month to provide for your family. All of those fears will be taken away. In heaven, you will have no more sorrows, nor will you ever experience loss. Think about that. In heaven, you will have no more sorrows. Jesus promises that he will wipe every tear from our eye. In heaven, you will be blessed. You will experience blessing in abundance. C.S. Lewis, he says, in heaven, we will drink joy directly from the fountain of joy. You will drink joy directly from the fountain of joy. In heaven, you will be beautiful. Just think about that. Do you need to hear that? Do you want to be beautiful? When's the last time somebody looked at you with a heart full of love and not being sarcastic? <laughs> Say, you are beautiful. In heaven, we will experience and receive resurrected bodies in glory. We will experience recreation. And you'll be perfect. God's going to look at you and say, you are so beautiful. We're going to look at each other and say, you are so beautiful. You're going to look at yourself. And without lying to yourself, you're going to say, I am beautiful. Because God, God has glorified me. And he's perfected me. And it's not just beautiful in your personality. Beautiful in your flesh. Beautiful. You'll be spectacular in recreation. In heaven, you're going to be a truly good person without sin. What's that going to be like? No more second-guessing your motives. No more second-guessing yourself. You know how in the first message I talked about the fight, the fight between the flesh and the fight between the spirit? That fight's going to be over, and you're going to be good. And the spirit will be reigning over you, and you're going to be good, truly good. In heaven, you're going to be like Jesus as you're fully united with him, right? This pursuit that we have, I know for some of you, you've been a Christian for so long, 
and, 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 and it's almost tiring. You feel, like you're, you feel like you're like that kind of donkey chasing the carrot at the end of the stick. You're like, when will I ever actually become like Jesus? Well, when Jesus returns and he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, that's going to be a reality. You and I, we're going to be like Jesus as we experience complete union with him. Friends, experiencing the joy of the Lord. You see this. It's not about running away from all the bad things. Okay? It's not about running away from all the bad things. It's about running towards the good. Okay? It's about looking at heaven. It's about looking at our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about receiving his promises and pursuing those things. And as we do, as we set our hearts and as we set our hopes and as we set our lives upon God's promises to us, you're going to receive the joy of the Lord. You're going to receive the joy of the Lord. Do you want it? He offers that to you today. He offers that to you right now, freely, by his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your joy and goodness towards us. We thank you that you are kind towards us. And you don't tell us to manufacture synthetic joy in our hearts. You know that would be no good. We thank you that you, O Lord, provide for us joy. That you birth it in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters for a filling of your joy by your Spirit. Even in the midst of our sorrows and anxieties, I pray that you would give us a taste of your joy. That you would satisfy us with your gladness. God, we need it. God, we need you so much. We confess that we have chased after the happiness of this world. And we found it to be so bittersweet. We found those pleasures to be so fleeting. We just jump from one thing to another, one person to another, one goal to another, God, and we are weary Give us a joy that is everlasting. Would you satisfy us, O oh Lord, as we drink from your fountains? Meet us. Would you meet us here? We thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.